All right, good morning, everybody. I'm glad y'all are here today. Welcome to the story. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor of the Story Church. And if uh, we haven't become acquainted yet, I just want to say hi and thank you for being here, especially if you're just checking out the story today, like for the first time or you're relatively new here. Um, hello, and, and thank you for, for being here this Sunday morning. Also, I want to say hello to our friends over at the Timber Grove campus at 8200 Washington Avenue. They are here with us today. Everybody say, what's up, Timber Grove? All right, and we love you guys, and uh, we're so grateful for y'all as well. Uh, also, everybody joining us online, we, we love that you're a part of the story. No matter where you are in the world, you can connect with us in this way, and it means the world to us. So thank you for being here. What a time it is to be alive at the Story Church. You guys, it is, what's today? October 29th. So almost exactly two years ago, uh, today was when I told y'all I had the scariest Halloween of my life because the story was looking for a place to go almost exactly two years ago. And we thought we had one um, sort of secured and settled up. Um, we were going to rent um, the gymnasium of this church called Bethany Christian Church in the River Oaks area of Houston. And, and that was our Plan A, and we didn't have a plan B, um, which is probably my bad in retrospect. But we had <laughs> plan A we were really excited about. And on uh, Halloween of 2021, we found out that that was not happening. And so we were freaking out because we had, from that point, two months to find a place to go and for our church to call home. So we were really facing a crisis. Um, we ended up finding this place by the grace of God and the uh, generosity of a real estate developer named Larry Levine, who I'll be eternally grateful for. Um, and we've been here for almost uh, two years now. Um, and uh, y'all know a year ago this month was when I first stood up here and we played the video and we announced the possibility, the ver very remote possibility that our offer on that same church we tried to rent the gymnasium from, that our offer to buy that church building um, would be approved, and subsequently it was approved. The good people of Bethany Christian Church wanted to sell to a church and not some developer, and so they gave us a, a church discount. It was still a steep climb um, for us, for sure, but um, God really worked in a mighty way. Um, that was just a year ago that we announced the very first possibility that that could happen. We ended up closing the deal on that property at 3223 Westheimer Road um, back in April, just after Easter, April 25th of this year. It has just flown by, hasn't it? And, um, and we, we didn't know exactly when we would be able to move into the new place. It, needs a lot, it needed a lot of sort of TLC and some upgrades to make it sort of ready for the Story Church. And so we were thinking sometime early next year, but y'all know that timeline has accelerated. Um, and after this week, after today, we've got one more Sunday at this campus, Timber Grove. You guys are good. Y'all just stay put at Timber Grove. And, uh, and we're going to be moving this campus on November the 12th uh, to our new home at 3223 Westheimer Road to that same gymnasium that we tried to rent two years ago, um, which our church now uh, has acquired the whole property. So it's just an incredible move of God. So once again, uh, next Sunday, the 5th, will be our last Sunday here. You're not going to see any of this stuff. It's going to be a bare, empty room because everything has to be moved over and installed. Speakers, lights, none of it. It's going to be like the shaker days or something. Like we're going back to the old school primitive church. And um, you folks online, you'll get a, a pre-recorded worship service. But if you can be here in person, it's going to be a great day of gratitude as we uh, celebrate all that God has done in our two years in this space. And I can't wait to see what he does with our community in our new home in, uh, in River Oaks. 
Now, one of the reasons we're moving earlier than expected is because of my amazing wife and your amazing pastor, Gio, um, our executive pastor here at the, at the story. Um, now, against maybe her better thinking, she was not, she had decided after taking on the GC role for this um, upgrade, remodel for this property, she was like, never again. And then, <laughs> never say never, right? And then this opportunity arose for the story to remodel our new home. We have a ton of work that didn't need to be permitted, but had to be done. And Giovanna uh, took that on herself. Y'all, she has, over the last four months, spent so much time at Home Depot and at Lowe's, which is just, like, the worst places to be, right? They, they, nobody helps you. You know, Home Depot's motto was, like, you can do it, we can help, which everybody knew was a lie. You can do it, but you're on your own, like that kind of thing. And, and uh, <laughs> I have a friend that works at Home Depot. I should be careful. So anyway, the, the, uh, the, the last few months have been absolutely uh, challenging for my wife. M many of you um, aren't aware of her GC skills. Uh, she's a, a delicate thing when you look at her, right? Like 25, 3, 5, 4, you know. Um, and she doesn't look like a general contractor. Might, you might think a general contractor looks. Um, but uh, in addition to being a great pastor, loving wife and mother, she has these amazing skills in construction um, and project management and interior design. And she has just been crushing it, picking out every fixture and carpet tile and floor tile and um, uh, paint colors and everything and staying on top of our subcontractors over there to get it ready. It has been incredible to, uh, to, to behold. And uh, had she not stepped into that role, we wouldn't be moving this congregation in a couple of weeks. We'd be moving sometime early 2024, and we would have paid probably $200,000 more for the upgrades that she has overseen. Now, there's still other work to be done that requires permits and all that that she won't be able to oversee, but the stuff she's done has been incredible. Now, some people have asked me over the years if it is in any way emasculating to be married <laughs> to a woman like this. My response has evolved, but as of today, my response is simple. It is this. Um, any boy can be married to a plain Jane, but it takes a man <laughs> to be married to a woman who is what every man should be, okay? So <laughs> it takes a real man, all right? It is slightly emasculating, but I'm grateful. Okay, so she is uh, so good at this stuff, and she always gets job offers from other, like, secular um, business leaders, like... Real estate guys want her to stage their houses for her. And, and uh, you know, other GCs want her to become a project manager. She can make a lot of money doing that stuff, but she's called to lead the church. She's called to love the Lord. That's her highest calling, and it has been since she was a little girl in Ecuador. You know, um, God just called her into ministry, and she's seen it as her life's sort of duty to respond to that calling as best she can. And, and so there's nothing else that can compare to serving the Lord in that way. And people that know her well know that Gio seems to have like one of those direct lines to heaven, you know, and that's why, you know, everybody's real nice to Gio because you don't want her to get, you know, like sideways because she's got the direct line and, you know, lightning strikes and all that. So you just, you just want to be on her good side because being on Gio's good side feels like being on the Lord's good side. And, and that's how it's always felt to me ever since I met her when we were both 18 years 
old. I met her when we were both 18. I wrote in a journal that I kept at the time, four days after meeting her, that this was the woman that I was supposed to marry. Again, 18 years old. It's quite a declaration, right? Um, most of us were trying to, to, you know, marry supermodels and in the 90s, Cindy Crawford, right, and all these other people. But God put this person in my life, and I just knew. I just knew as young as I was. By age 19, we were engaged. Many of you know by age 20, we were married, and I was captivated by this woman. Captivated is the word. I was held captive by her, (laughs) and not by her doing, but by my own just desire to love her well, to make her feel loved, to make her feel safe, to make her feel protected and provided for. She was here in this country without her family. I, I wanted to be her family for her. And, and, and in a way, I, I just realized in retrospect, I don't know what I realized at the time, but in a way, what really drew me to her wasn't just her. I mean, there were things about Gio that I liked, like a man likes a woman, right? Like things about Gio that had nothing to do with Jesus, but what really caused me to be obsessed with her, to be drawn to her, was Christ in her. And and this reality that there are people in the world, and she's one of them, that the closer you draw to them, the closer you draw to Jesus. And the closer I got to Gio, the closer I was to to Jesus. I was pursuing God by pursuing Gio in a way. And obviously over time, that's had the flip where, you know, God becomes the one I'm pursuing most. But in the beginning, it was a pretty girl. All right. And then um, God worked on me through her. And I think this is how it works for us, whether it's a pretty girl or a handsome guy, or whether it's a career path or an income bracket or a neighborhood or a car or a life goal, whatever it is, I think that's kind of how our obsessions work. The things that captivate us um, hold on to us and make us feel as though we can't help but feel the way we feel. We can't help but do the things we do. And a lot of those obsessions are healthy and good. Really, they're God-given. God wired you to be obsessed about a few things in life. I know that's a negative word, or how we usually use it is, is negative, but it, it's, at its core, a good and godly thing to be fixated on something, as long as what you're fixated on is the right and good thing for you. Unfortunately, you know, we're also capable of being captivated by unholy things that are not of God. And this is what's at issue for us today. This is what I want to talk about and think about today. And in your own heart of hearts, I want you to think about this, really. What is it that has captivated you in your life today? And if you're wondering, how do I know? It's what you think about the most. It's what you go to bed thinking about, worrying about, dreaming about. It's what you wake up in the morning, you know, considering, pondering, reflecting on. It's That's what you are captivated by. It's your highest and most important thing, all right? That's your obsession. So is what you are obsessed with or drawn to, is that of God or is it of something else? That's the question really before us. And today's message is part seven of 26 in our series called Acts of the Apostles, How a Handful of Nobodies Became a Movement for Everybody. This is an extraordinary book. We're going to read from chapter four today um, of this book of Acts, uh, starting in verse 13. So if uh, you have a Bible or Bible app, you can grab it. And um, let's see what this book has for us today. The Bible's in front of you, in the chair backs in front of you, at least here and over at Timber Grove. 
Uh, they are yours for the taking. If you don't have a Bible of your own, hope you'll accept that as a gift from us. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, all right? <clears throat> so when they saw, they here, if you do your homework here, look up, they in context means the religious leaders who in this chapter of Acts are beginning to persecute the Christians. This is the beginning, first ever persecution of, of Christians. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed, so Peter and John have just healed a man who's standing among them, see him standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Then Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, listen, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We cannot help it. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened, for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So this passage is uh, coming to us in context of a, of a great sign, a miracle that has taken place just moments before what we just read happened, okay? So Peter and John, two apostles of Jesus, are, are entering the temple courts. They come across a man who, Acts chapter 3, verse 2 says, had been lame, unable to walk since birth, which is why that last line in today's reading isn't as cryptic as it seems. When, when Luke finishes this little part by saying, oh, by the way, the man was over 40 years old, it sounds like he's just being rude. Like, well, he was over 40 years old. Like, no, it's, it's, an, it's sort of a tip of the cap back to, to Acts 3 verse 2, where it says, he had been lame since birth. And every day, people, we don't know who exactly, his friends, his family, I don't know, carried him to the entrance of the temple at a gate called Beautiful and sat him there so that he could beg for money and food so he could survive. That was his daily reality. And he'd been doing that for over 40 years, more than a generation. And so the point of mentioning that is to say everybody knew this guy as the, the, the lame guy, the disabled guy, or today we would say differently abled guy, sitting in the, in the entrance of the temple. Everybody knew him and saw him. And now he's walking around. This is a big deal. This is the sort of miracle that Jesus worked before the religious leaders in cahoots with the Roman military put him on a cross. And so the fact that, that James and John walked into the temple courts and worked the same kind of miracle was immediately perceived as a threat by the people who should have been the first to get what was happening. This is the danger of misplaced desire 
that becomes an obsession. Whenever you fix your eyes on something south of heaven, something that is not of God, something that is about you primarily and not about the God who made you, something about creatures and created stuff instead of the creator, it's just a matter of time before that obsession blinds you to the truth. And these religious guys were fixated, obsessed really, with something that most people would say is a good and godly thing. What was their fixation? Religion. Friends, believe me when I tell you that religion, just like any other attachment in this world, can be a negative and toxic thing if it becomes in and of itself your obsession. If it's no longer pointing you higher toward heaven, but it itself, its dogmas, its rituals, its practices become the God you serve, you will invariably become blinded to the work of God outside your own limited construct. And not only will you choose not to see it, but whenever it happens, whenever God moves outside your construct, you will deny the clear work of God. These guys were obsessed with religion in a way that was leading them farther away from God. It happens all the time. But it's just one of many examples of the ways we get obsessed with things, right? We get obsessed with all kinds of things that lead us farther away from God. Almost always, these things end up making us feel bigger, us feel more important or entitled. It's almost always about self-indulgence, in a way, these misplaced desires. Think about how addiction works. You ever tried to love an addict in their addiction? Maybe you've been an addict in your addiction, and maybe you are today. There's no shame in that here, or no judgment, whatever. It's like, I'm glad you're here, okay? We've all been there to, to varying degrees. But the way that addiction works is it takes the God-given capacity for desire and obsession and twists and contorts it. You know, everything God creates, Satan wants to imitate. God has created in you and hardwired you for sincere desire and even obsession to the extent that you're passionate about something, you want to do the right thing, you want to live a life of significance and purpose and meaning, and, and you want to spread the love and spread the joy, but man, Satan will take all that goodness and just, he won't turn it all the way around into something that's obviously evil, he'll just twist it a little bit. God made you, for example, for sacrificial love. But Satan will take that God-given desire and try to convince you that, that what you really want is not to love, but just to be loved. And then he'll say, well, what to be loved means is to be, you know, um, is to be uh, at the center of your own universe. It's to see yourself as worthy, you know, of all the love everyone has to give. And maybe what he'll say is, um, this God of yours, although he created you for intimacy, this enemy of yours will come along and say, well, what you really want is lust. What you really want is sexual gratification. No, the, the hard wiring is for intimacy. The sex stuff is secondary to that. But God hardwired you for certain things. God hardwired you for humility. Satan wants you full of hubris. God hardwired you for purity. Satan wants you full of pride, right? So he'll take what God has given you and try to twist it just a little into an obsession that is not of 
him. That's what happens with addiction. And when we fall prey to these lesser gods and become obsessed with those lesser things, we lose sight of the truth. Jesus talked about blind people all the time. And most of the time that he did, he wasn't talking about physically blind people. Physically blind people can see just fine from heaven's point of view if they want to. But you can see with your eyes and still be blind as a bat from heaven's perspective because you refuse to see the truth of God when you are fixated on the things of this world. And, and that can be drugs and alcohol, that can be sex and pornography, that can be religion. <laughs> but if it's not God that you're oriented toward, that you're striving for, it's just a matter of time before you create for yourself a bloodthirsty God of your own. I was talking to a man after the 8.30 service here who uh, said he was deep in his own addiction just five or so years ago. It was his first time here at the story. He really opened up to me, and I was so grateful. And he said, there was a time that I was living in my car, but I refused to call myself homeless. The truth was clear. He was as homeless as homeless could be, living in his car. And yet he refused to admit that reality because, well, his own obsessions and idols wouldn't let him see or admit the truth. That's what's going on with uh, these guys who are uh, immediately critical of Peter and John and what they represented, right? So the, the difference I want you to see between a godly obsession and an ungodly one is who you spend your time with and what you spend your time on. If you're thinking to yourself, well, there's some things I'm obsessed with, but they don't feel like, you know, they're bad things. Well, take stock of who you spend your time with and what you spend your time doing and who that is in service of. I want us to look again at that passage, just the first verse of the passage we read, Acts 4, verse 13. And I want us to pay attention to what exactly the religious leaders noticed about Peter and John. Did you see there were three things the first thing they noticed about Peter and John was that they were courageous. Why were they courageous? Because they were willing to say things that, you know, could get them killed. The same things they were saying days before that got Jesus killed, and now they're saying them all over again. That's courage. But where'd the courage come from? Well, the second thing they noticed about, they noticed about Peter and John was that they were unschooled and ordinary men. And that was a threat. Why? Because these uneducated fishermen were better teachers than the religious leaders were. And it was their job, their full-time job to teach. And Peter and John came along and taught better. That was a threat. But where did that come from? It all stems from the third thing they noticed about Peter and John. Did you catch it when we read it? They took note. Peter and John had been with Jesus. Now, what's that mean? On the one hand, it could mean they just remembered seeing Peter and John follow Jesus around. I think that's a plausible explanation, but I think there's more to it than that. I think they took note that Peter and John had been with Jesus signals to us that Peter and John's behavior, their words, their courage, reminded the religious leaders of Jesus. And when they saw Peter and John doing what they were doing in the temple and the people's response, they saw not just Peter and John, they saw Christ in Peter and John. They saw Jesus in them. And this is just a phenomenon that happens to believers when we choose to spend time with Jesus. When we choose to make him 
the obsession of our lives, the one we are devoted to, the one we want the most. When you spend time with Jesus, and friends, it's possible, just as possible for us to spend time with Jesus as it was for James, I mean, for, for John and Peter. Why? Because you can spend time with Jesus in prayer. You can spend time with Jesus in his word that we call the Bible. You can spend time with Jesus among his people that we call the church. You can spend time with Jesus by receiving his Holy Spirit inside of you. Not only can you have Christ with you, you can have Christ in you. And the more, this is the miracle of miracles to me, like the more time ordinary people spend with Jesus, the more Jesus everybody else will see in us. And when you speak after spending time with Jesus, the people that hear you speak will hear not just you, but Jesus in you. And when you act in Christian love in the world around you, they won't just see you, they'll see Jesus acting in you. Anybody that encounters you after you've spent time with Jesus in some way, indirectly or directly, like they encounter not just you, but Jesus in you. It is a powerful thing. You can tell almost, almost um, always, you can tell when someone spent time with Jesus because they're speaking in a different way. Their face looks redeemed. And it has nothing to do with their dermatologist or their treatments or their skincare regimen. They have the countenance of Christ because their obsession is him and spending time with him. James, I mean, I keep calling him James, that was his brother. John and Peter spent time with Jesus and not just in his life physically on the earth, but in the aftermath of that time through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I love, I love their response. After the religious leaders commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, what did they say? We can't help it. <laughs> we can't help it. Just like an addict says it on the dark side of desire. These believers, these followers of Jesus, after spending time with him and being faced with these threats, we can't help it. Kill us if you must but we can't help speaking of him, teaching in his name, healing in his name, doing his work on his behalf. We can't help it, and we won't stop it. This is the kind of courage that Christ gives us when we spend time with him. There's a, a man named um, Will Wilberforce um, who uh, was a uh, up-and-coming British parliamentarian, a politician in the uh, late 18th century, early 19th century. Um, he was on his way to fame and fortune, like all politicians dream of, <laughs> and by whatever means necessary, unfortunately. And, and he was on that path. He was raised in a religious family, but, but only culturally so, right? A proper British religious family, which keeps religion in its place. You know, it's like, but let's not get carried away, right? It's, it's like, we don't want to be those Christians. We just want to be Christians, right? So we can still live normal lives, but have Jesus on the side and still go to heaven and all that. That's sort of the Western civilization way. And, and a lot of us are cultural Christians, if we're honest. There was a movement, though, in England at the time of uh, Wilberforce's youth, um, that was known as an enthusiastic, charismatic, um, holy roller um, evangelicalism. And that movement 
was a bunch of people called Methodists. I know it's weird. I know it's weird. Methodists at the time were the crazy holy rollers. And they were the subject of, uh, of a lot of scorn in British culture. Proper British people didn't want their kids to be Methodist, anything but Methodist. And, and Will Wilberforce um, mostly avoided that. He had an aunt and an uncle that, that kind of radicalized him in his childhood. But his uh, mom got him away from them as soon as she possibly could, sent him to boarding school. He became a normal kid, partying and doing everything the normal kids do. He was elected to, to the British Parliament at the youngest age possible, age 21. His, one of his best friends was uh, the youngest ever, at the time, the youngest ever um, prime minister of Britain. I mean, he had it all going his way. And, um, you know, he could have done what all politicians do, which is just multiply their net worth year over year with whatever they do to do that. I don't want to know. Um, it's Sunday, and I'm trying to stay holy today. Okay, so he could have done all that. And he was on that path until... God started breaking through. And it started when Wilberforce met a man named John Newton, actually. And, uh, and John Newton was a former slave trader uh, who God, Jesus, really got a hold of and, and uh, made a Christian out of him, even though he was racked with shame. John Newton is the uh, composer, writer of uh, Amazing Grace, everybody's favorite hymn. And Wilberforce became friends with Newton, and then there was a trip that Wilberforce took when he was 25 years old, and, and unbeknownst to Wilberforce, there was on that trip a Methodist, and Wilberforce later said if he had known there was a Methodist on that trip, he never would have gone, but he went, and there was a Methodist on that trip named Milner, and they ended up talking about Jesus and the Bible and God and the gospel, the whole trip. And uh, thankfully, Wilberforce was not so deep in his worldly obsessions that he was totally blind to the truth because by the end of that trip, he was a born-again, holy roller, <laughs> evangelical believer in Jesus Christ. And this is what was written of him by um, a biographer named Eric Metaxas. It says, Wilberforce found to his significant distress that he had come to believe with his whole mind that what he had been sure was false was in fact true. The God of the Bible existed. Jesus existed in history and was the promised Messiah. And the scriptures were not silly old myths, but truth itself. For someone of his social standing and prestige, he was in a curious and uncomfortable position. What to do about it? The Lord put in front of Wilberforce a new mission from that day a mission not only to seek, you know, his, merely his own political glory, but a mission to once and for all abolish the transatlantic slave trade. He faced a lot of significant opposition and lost a lot of social capital and friends for taking the stance that he took against which, that which at that time was mostly popular for economic reasons, unfortunately. Evil and depravity are heinous things, and it had fully taken hold in those days in that regard. Wilberforce spoke out against it, made it his life's mission. There are at least two accounts of him being beaten to a pulp on the sidewalk of London. Death threats came in one after the other. Friends fled his side. There were rumors that swirled around Wilberforce until the day that he died, 
totally false rumors, but rumors that were meant to sort of discredit him in a way. They said he was actually not single, but secretly married to an African woman, and that he was beating her in the shadows of his own home, and nobody knew about it. Just all kinds of heinous, filthy rumors about this man who made it his life's mission to do what Jesus said he came to do, free the captives once and for all. In the midst of his battle against the transatlantic slave trade, John Wesley wrote a letter to Wilberforce, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. He wrote, unless the divine power has raised you up to be as Athanasius, that's a church father, Athanasius, contra mundum, against the world, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable villainy, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on, Wesley wrote, in the name of God and in the power of his might, till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Go on until slavery has vanished before the power of God. That power comes, my friends, from spending time with the Lord, spending time in prayer, spending time in the word, not just going to church to, you know, extract a transaction from the Lord or get a blessing from him, but to invest your heart in him, that's where the power lies. And I know we're all up against something in this life. We're all obsessed in different ways to do different things with our lives. And some of our obsessions are godly and good. Some of them are evil and we know it. But I would guess that most of our obsessions are potentially of God, but just need a slight tweak. And were you to spend time with Jesus and to be filled with his spirit, he would just reorient your desires just a little bit to bring glory to his name instead of to your own. And that's the difference between a good and godly desire and a fallen one. Let me offer a couple of examples. I think about my obsession with Geo, right? Had I just continued on for years being just obsessed with the woman and not the God who gave me the woman, right? That could have gone all kinds of ways, mostly bad. Because no person can live up to those high standards. Had I made a God out of my wife, that would not have been fair to her or to me or anybody. But I allowed God to speak to me through her, and I subsequently made the decision to make God my obsession. And every time I get closer to God, I want to love my wife better. And so my desire for my wife hasn't gone away. God has just reoriented, reoriented it a little bit to make him the obsession. And the love I have for my wife is a byproduct of it. If you're a parent, if you're a good parent, I imagine you probably obsess over your kids a lot. Maybe you feel bad about that or weird about that. Maybe you feel totally self-justified about that. But you wake up thinking, how am I going to help them get through this problem? How am I going to make sure they you know, are successful or they live the life they're supposed to live? That desire is God-given to be a great parent, to raise great children in a way, is absolutely of God. But if it's just for their sake and not for God's, that desire needs a little bit of a tweak today. 
The time you spend with Jesus is where that tweak will happen. And you'll find yourself obsessed in a similar way, but slightly different. You raise your children not to be successful, but to know the Lord. Not for their glory or yours, but for his. I think about teachers who obsess over their students. Just probably your teachers, you obsess over that one or two students in your class that just, they've got the deck stacked against them. You go to bed at night thinking about those kids. That, I want to tell you, is absolutely of God. It's not your job to fix them, however. And if you try and try to fix them and their situation by your own power, you will burn out, as a lot of teachers are, for various reasons, I understand. I just want you teachers to know that desires of God, and the more you time you spend with Jesus, the more he'll just tweak and reorient that desire to make it about his glory and no one else's. I think about first responders, policemen, for example, police officers, for example, who wake up every morning perfectly willing to lay their lives on the line for a bunch of ungrateful Americans like us, people that don't even, aren't even aware of half the things they face every day, and yet they get up and do it anyway. And I want all first responders and medical folks and um, police officers and every, everyone in these fields to know that desire that God gave you, absolutely it's of God, but it's meant to be for his glory and nothing else. The time you spend with Jesus will change everything. The uh, last thing I'll offer up is this quote. I skipped it earlier, so whoever's running the slides backstage, let's go back a couple of slides. I want to save it for the end. This is from the 18th century preacher, Jonathan Edwards, who put it like this. When men have been conversing with Christ in an extraordinary manner, there is a sensible effect of it remaining upon them. There's something remarkable in their disposition and frame, which if we take knowledge of and trace to its cause, we shall find it is because they have been with Jesus. Who or what is your obsession? And if it's anything short of the Lord, then why? Where are you spending your time and investing your life? And if it's anything other than Christ, why? You were created by the one who calls you by name, who gives your life its purpose and its meaning. So make your life about him. Spend time with him. Be empowered and emboldened by him. To him be the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for today, for this reminder from your book of Acts. Um, thank you for the courage of the apostles, for the model that they set for the rest of us. Thank you for your church that continues, despite its flaws and sins, that continues to just um, spread the world over, the gospel message of Jesus that is like no other. Lord, we pray that the captives would continue to be freed in your name for your sake and that everything that we do and say would be for your glory, and that we would so invest our lives in you that everyone that meets us and encounters us this week encounters and meets you in us and through us. Not for our glory, but for yours. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.